0: Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels. And I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice.
1: There are certain kinds of intellectual processes that really aren't that conducive to fiction writing. And a writer like Wallace, I think, has to, and did successfully by and large, subsume those tendencies into fiction.
0: One of my favorite authors of all time is the American novelist and essayist David Foster Wallace. That name can evoke a variety of things to different people, and in this episode, I'll try and unpack these different facets with the writer D.T. Max, who wrote an excellent biography of David Foster Wallace in 2012 called Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. Here are some basic facts of Wallace's life and work for those who aren't familiar with it. He was born in 1962. He was a high-level junior tennis player in the Midwest. He attended Amherst College in Massachusetts, and he was quickly considered to be a young and bright shining star of American literature in the late 1980s with the release of his first novel, The Broom of the System. But then in the next few years, it seemed that he couldn't quite fulfill his initial promise and he faded from view. His lifelong struggle with depression was compounded by an increasingly serious alcohol and substance abuse problem until seemingly out of nowhere, he published in 1996, his magnum opus novel, Infinite Jest, a totally brilliant dystopian novel, which comes in at over a thousand pages, including 250 pages of must read footnotes, a stylistic signature for which he was famous. Because of its superb prose and popular culture themes around entertainment and addiction, Wallace has often been qualified as a postmodern novelist, but as we'll see in today's episode, maybe that's a label that's not totally accurate. He later published some brilliant short story collections and a very respectable body of non-fiction, but tragically, David Foster Wallace died by suicide in 2008 at the age of 46. 46 a victim of his debilitating depression. DT Max, my guest today, wrote the book Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, and it's an amazing book as it tells the story of this great artist, his evolution and inspirations, while also recalling some of the more problematic aspects of his life, including accounts of domestic abuse with some of his former partners. I contacted DT Max, who kindly agreed to an interview and we were originally scheduled to talk for about 45 minutes but then we got so into the discussion that we ended up chatting for about an hour and a half therefore exceptionally i decided to split this episode in half with the second part being released next week this was one of my favorite interviews as it dealt in such depth with a writer who remains despite his well-documented flaws and issues one of my favorite writers of all time. I hope you enjoy this week and next week's episode as much as I did. What prompted you to write this book? Why David Foster Wallace?
1: The story of how I came to David Foster Wallace always disappoints the the true believers because I I came to it in a fairly humdrum way. I've been a, a reader of Wallace's. But it was actually my editor, David Remnick at The New Yorker, who after Wallace's death suggested that I write a a piece about what had happened. And from there, I came upon the unfinished uh, manuscript that would become Pale King. And when I was done with the piece, you know, these New Yorker pieces are long. It was like 10,000 words. I didn't really feel I'd spend as much time as I wanted to spend with, with Wallace. I was just really getting into the work in a serious way. So, you know, if in terms of party cards, I don't I don't have a low party card number, and, and uh, <laughs> don't pretend I do. You know, when, when he was alive, I mean, again, I didn't know him, but I we traveled in sort of, to the extent you can say Wallace traveled in any crowd. We traveled in kind of parallel crowds, and he was, you know, he was somebody whose writing I had been interested in. I remember Broom of the System came out, and I was just absolutely stunned. He and I were almost exactly the same age. I think that over time, I kind of let him drop a little bit like many, many readers did. And then with his death, I kind of went back to him wholesale trying to make up for, you know, the relationship that we hadn't really had while he was alive. Is that relationship that you didn't have while you were alive the
0: ghost story of the title, perhaps? Is that the phantom?
1: Well, interesting. I mean, I did always think it was a pretty good summary of what a biography is, which is that every love story is a ghost story. Because of course, generally, you write a biography if you're if you're even halfway sane. You don't write a biography of a living person. <laughs> you write <laughs> a biography of a person after they're gone. So yeah, that's an interesting and I think a valid interpretation. The other interesting thing is that since the publication of the book, I'd uh, not really known where that line had come from. Every love story is a ghost story, and it's a weird story because I found it in some papers. I'm going to blank out on the name of the wonderful Australian or New Zealand writer. Uh, who wrote The Man Who Loved Children. But, but anyway, she had used that phrase in some papers, I found. But what was weird was that, you know, there was no possible way that Wallace could have, or very, very unlikely Wallace could have possibly seen that phrase. So the phrase is actually also, interestingly, in Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. But it's, weirdly enough, only in the story version that was published in whatever magazine published it first, and he dropped the sentence in the book. So it wasn't until I was at some talk, I think, in the University of Maryland, that some very well-educated English professor, I forget exactly who said, I know where that's from. And I was like, no, it's not from the things they carried. And then he and I both went and found the, it was maybe Harper's that published it, but we found the original version and it was in there. And I confirmed it with O'Brien eventually. I mean, now it's clear. He did see Tim O'Brien talk at University of Arizona. Wallace did. So it all makes good sense. I just didn't have it at the time the biography was published.
0: You write in the book, Biography is an Exercise in Communal Remembering. I like that phrase. You wrote this book at a time when the emotions of a lot of the participants who must have worked with you were still very raw. Can you take us through that process of writing a biography so close to the death of the main protagonist? How do you think that the proximity in time impacted the remembering and ultimately the book?
1: Well, I mean, there was an advantage in that people remembered everything. And not only did they remember everything, they also were eager to try to find out the part of the story they didn't know. Because he was a very hidden individual. So, you know, you could speak with, I don't know, his sister and then speak with a girlfriend. And they'd almost have two totally different thoughts on who this person was who'd been in their lives. It's just hard. I mean, it's just literally hard to sit down with somebody especially because, you know, David died by suicide. It's just trying for them and it's trying for you. It certainly would be easier in some ways today. You know, on the negative side, I mean, this is just kind of tradecraft. But when somebody dies young, as David did, they leave a very, very, I didn't know any of this when I started the book, but they leave a very broad roster of people who remember them. So now here we are, and we're 15 years out, right? And some of the people have died. I mean, the older people, many, some of the, his parents are gone now. Some of his professors are, are gone now. You know, so it gets harder in that way. And then, I mean, you'd have to acknowledge that, and this is nothing that a biographer can control for. In fact, it's, I think it's, it's why biography is always interesting and always fresh. As you know, you're right in the environment that you're in. And, you know, one thing that surprised me very much about the reception of the book was that, you know, people basically sort of ignored the darker side of Wallace in receiving the book. Quite honestly, I I thought it would um, alienate a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. But I don't think people were, you know, I was surprised then at how much his, I mean, this is simplifying life, but how much his positive traits were reviewed and codified from the book and more recently, I've been surprised at, at how much the negative side of him has been reviewed. And the word isn't codified, but whatever the review it is, word is, you know. So, you know, a biography is done when it's done, but the atmosphere in the in which it lives changes over time. So, when you write right after somebody's death, I think you probably kind of get what you deserve in that sense. Like you, you know that even on a more literary level, the, the verdict is not, so to speak, in. Uh, and I don't know that the verdict, I mean, I know what my verdict is about Wallace as a creative person, but I don't know that the verdict, you know, is in from the larger society. I mean, I, w- I would think as a writer, separate from the private life, the work is aged pretty well and is still being read at levels that I think many writers at just this period after deaths are often almost completely forgotten. You know, typically, you die, get forgotten, and get revived, like sort of almost an F. Scott Fitzgerald type thing. You know, now Wallace was never forgotten. Now that may be because we live in the speeded-up society that he, you know, that created. he had predicted. Yeah, in Infinite Jest. I mean, he was, You know, I mean, to be fair, Infinite Jest isn't for me. Infinite the strength of Infinite Jest is not its prognosticatory value. If I mean, that stuff is all pretty well underway. Mm-hmm yes when he when he published the book he even published the book in 1972 you know i agree with you it's it, yeah. a, a lot of people
0: say oh he predicted so much actually a lot of it as you say was underway uh so that's not necessarily where the value uh, no
1: the i mean I, th- I think his gift was there was the ability to imagine a possible kind of mental response to things that were already underway and more imaginative than than literal you know i mean it's a there have been a lot of dystopian books since Wallace, and a lot before Wallace too, and still it it says something other books don't say, and that's that I think is quite an accomplishment. Absolutely, we'll talk
0: about that book in a minute because it is mm. so central to his life and work. Uh, I want to come back to uh, your biography because, like you said, maybe some of the fans felt alienated, some of the fans felt closer. I came away from reading your book uh, this second time, in fact, feeling closer to David Foster Wallace, the artist, the writer, uh, in the sense that he had such a sincere desire to forge a new literary path to innovate fiction. Is that something that you feel bring fans closer to him, this real sincerity in his art? And is that what's going to allow his work to age relatively well? Or on the flip side of that, was he just too contemporary of his age to age well? How do you situate
1: him? First of all, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of readers do respond to a kind of authenticity or sincerity, but well, they're slightly different things for sure, but in his voice and a kind of earnest quality of engagement, even in Infinite Jest, which is in many ways is a you know, much less earnest book than it's not to kill a mockingbird. I mean, it's a very complicated, multi-layered endeavor. I mean, I would say honestly. I, I mean, I think authenticity or sincerity—again, slightly different things—goes in and out of style. And I would think that probably, if I were, you know, an insurance company handicapping uh, Wallace's chances for survival, I would think that that's actually kind of a risk. Um, the the work that tends, I think, to age. Best in literature, by which I mean never really goes in and out of style, is closer to kind of Flaubertian ideal. And you know, I could imagine a future where people like parts of Infinite Jest and not other parts. For instance, you know, they'll they'll admire the Gately material, but not the conversations on the mountaintop with Marath. You know, and maybe to some extent that's already happened. I think that there's an evident genius in wallace and especially in infinite jest it's balanced against this funny earnest desire to touch us and if there's something that's surprising it's that to the extent he can keep them in balance they reach readers especially readers who are you know i mean he's the classic 21 year old backpacking in tibet one book kind of guy still And it's interesting to me because I sometimes do teach on Wallace or just run into Wallace acolytes, uh, both male and female, in their teens. And that is remarkable because, you know, he's not being taught in high schools. So they've got to find him on their own.
0: So he's connecting to a new generation of readers, you're saying? I I am, and
1: and I would be completely honest if he wasn't. I mean, I'm actually quite surprised to find that people, you know, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds come up to me. So these are people who were, you know, five when he died, right? And they do respond, and they do respond in spite of what they know about his personal life. I've not met anyone who doesn't know about it, whether they got it from the biography or they got it elsewhere, they got it. I mean, it's certainly amply represented in the biography. And yet they still are... He's still working for them as a writer. And I think that's great. I mean, I think that's really just good all around. Good for readers, good for Wallace, and good for the culture. Let's talk about Infinite
0: Jest. I mean, it's impossible to have a discussion around David Foster Wallace without mentioning it. I agree. It's really the super massive black hole at the heart of his life and work. Yeah. And so it's a book published in 1996. It's really a huge comeback novel for him. He's sort of been in the literary wilderness due to various issues. It's a book you describe in their biography as having a lot of tension or balance between different voices, different styles, it showcases two sides of him, you know, the more Amherst era comic vibe side versus... Aside, this influenced by postmodernism from Arizona, perhaps
1: that's a good summation. I, well, I got it from you. I got it from your book. <laughs> no wonder Charles, it sounded so. It sounded to me. so
0: great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so ultimately, what does all this tell us? What does this book tell us about David Foster Wallace in terms of his life at the time, his evolution as a writer? Where are we catching David Foster Wallace in his life when he publishes this book?
1: Well, I mean, clearly you're catching him at the best possible moment he would have disliked certainly the comparison to rock stars he would have he would have hated it but I mean there's this sort of you know he recognizes cliche as despicable even says so on the Charlie Rose show but you know he's basically like out of rehab and back you know writing his music I mean so he's you know he's very open and exposed he's kind of raw you know he feels this deep need to write the novel And I think that's actually, you can't underestimate how important I think that is both for him and any artist. You know, for instance, I just published a book-length interview with Stephen Sondheim, and in one hand, a Broadway composer, a lyricist, and Wallace could not be further apart. I don't know if Sondheim ever read Wallace. I'm trying to remember. He certainly read a bit of my biography, but only because I sent it to him. And I have no reason to think Wallace had ever seen a musical, though it's possible that he did. (laughs) I mean, he grew up, he might have seen musicals when he was in high school. I find it hard. I certainly, But I it seems th- like
0: he had more commercial, somewhat almost lowbrow tastes maybe to be going to Stephen Sondheim musicals.
1: Yeah, you would think Sondheim be the last thing he would go to. He'd probably even rather see Carousel before he'd see Sondheim. <laughs> but I think what they both had at certain moments in their lives was an absolute need to be creative, not unconnected with an absolute need to have an audience. And what they both lacked as they got older, and of course David never got very old, I believe that more than a diminishment of talent, which, I I mean, even Sondheim in his late 80s, I'm not sure that his talent was diminished. And of course, I mean, David was, you know, at the age that he died, is basically in his prime, typically prime of a creative writer. But they had both, I think, begun to question why they absolutely had to do this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember years ago in th- interviewing Anthony Pohl, the British novelist who wrote A Dance to the Music of Time, and he, I said to him, he was like 85, and I was like 30, and I remember asking him if he was working on another novel. He was he was ill, and he, he got quite angry at me. He said, you know, the thing is that you have to remember writing a novel is an extremely difficult physical task. It's like saying, why don't you climb up that wall and jump over it? And, and so. <laughs> I think there was a lot of truth to what he was saying. And you have to really want to climb over the wall. You really want, you have to really want to jump over the wall. And so I think that with Infinite Jest, he really does want that. In that moment, he's really, it's, you know, he's got a very clean life post rehab. I mean, he's doing very little but living in Syracuse. I mean, he writes the novel over time in different places, but certainly I think it's pretty clear that the, the key work probably took place in syracuse and he's not even there what's he there two years he's not there an enormous number of years but you know he's not got much else on his mind he's not teaching he's basically going to rehab and you know writing i mean i don't even know if he's remembering to eat you know <laughs> and that's a very pure place for him to be in as a as a creative person and so you know i mean i think you can see among other things you'd have one thing you have to say about infinite chess is it's it's an enormous work to hold in your head as a creative writer. You know, it's just a very big work. I don't just mean lengthwise. I mean, because it spans so much, because it has sections that seem sort of unrelated to other sections, but have to connect in some, some way because of the intensity of the writing on Gately. Even the parodies, you know, the Marath stuff in the mountains, just not that easy to commit to. I mean, it's very easy. I think it's a creator writer go no let's just cut that he doesn't cut it you know I'm sure it occurred to him he could cut it and he didn't and I think that that's a kind of a gives you a sense of um you know of just how fully involved in the book he is at that moment so I don't know if that's an answer to the question about I, that's maybe an answer to the question, why Infinite Jest then? I'm not sure it's an answer to the question, why Infinite Jest at all. Mm-hmm. I don't have a simple answer to the, like, why did he write, you know, there were pieces of it lying around for a long time, as I discovered working on every love story as a ghost story. There are pieces of it lying around for a long time. Some of it, in fact, goes back to Arizona, which is where he's a graduate student. He obviously wrote nonfiction, and, and that he seemed to
0: deliver fairly regularly and and, and found perhaps easier than fiction he certainly found it more remunerative more remunerative i'm sure but with the fiction one gets a sense that really this gestation period for infinite jest and then eventually for his last novel the pale king is really a very intense process do you think he was overthinking fiction maybe well
1: isn't that the big question isn't that sort of um the question that oblivion in part brings up, right? Just to Um, situate our listeners, Oblivion
0: being a collection of short stories, which he published in 2006.
1: Well, so yeah, so Oblivion, I think, although some of the stories in it are quite remarkable, seems to me to be a candidate for a book that was overthought and that consistently veers, you know, I can see why he doesn't want to tell those stories in a certain way. All the stories in there, and again, I, I should point out, is the biographer that you know, you realize that what we look on as a collection is really an accident to some extent. Like, you know, a writer writes over years, a publisher says, might be a good time for a collection. Or the writer thinks to himself, might be a good time for a collection. Or the the spouse says, might be a good time for a collection. (laughs) And then you decide what you have around that you want to collect so that it does tell you something about what a writer cares about. But it is possible, I think, to make too much of the cohesion of collections, just because as a reviewer, you got you got this bolus and you got to review it. But I think most of those stories seem to deliberately defy or defeat more simple narrative goals in a way that Infinite Jest doesn't. So Infinite Jest is a funny book because people always say, oh, you know, it became a kind of challenge book, which is not, not my thing. Like, I don't really care how long a book is or isn't. It's not, you know, I think after a certain point as a as a reader like you stop caring about whether a book is 150 pages or 500 like you either want to pursue it or you don't it's not like you've got trophies on the wall anymore you know like <laughs> so infinite chest is not really a very hard book to read it frustrates a little bit an ordinary reader's desire to make sense of something quickly but it does knit itself together more or less you know by the end and the sentences themselves are meant to be appetizing. I mean, Wallace himself decided that with Infinite Jest he would do a book that was, you know, hard, but not too hard. I mean, he really deliberately calculated Oblivion, to me, seems slightly different. I mean, Oblivion, the last collection of stories that he published in his life, you know, seems to me kind of the cat that doesn't want to be loved. Hmm. You know, and then any time you put it on its lap, kind of jumps off your lap. <laughs> so Bret Easton Ellis, who I don't know, actually once said the writer of Less Than Zero and American Psycho and now a kind of cranky Twitterer. (laughs) Brett once said, and I thought it was an interesting comment, that he'd always felt Wallace was too smart to be a fiction writer. He actually tweeted that after my book came out. I don't actually entirely agree with him. I do get the point that there are certain kinds of intellectual processes that really aren't that conducive to fiction writing. Mm -hmm. And a writer like Wallace, I think, has to, and did successfully, by and large, subsume those tendencies into fiction. You know, for an obvious one being like, you know, the sort of Wittgensteinian interest in... Language and reality. Language and the reality, right. Yeah, And the self, you know, so... I happen to think he did a brilliant job. He didn't like Room of the System by the time he's writing Infinite Jest, he's even earlier, you know, he associates Broom of the System with like everything he despises about himself a fluidity, facility. But it's also because he's resisting the nostalgia of how easy it was for him. You know, so there's a whole relationship there with his own ability to create that he isn't really recognizing when he, he says it's somewhere and it's in Every Love Story is a ghost story that he considers it a book written by a smart, does he say, I can't remember if he says 13 or 15-year-old, but he doesn't even say very smart. So he certainly was aware of the possibility that you could be too smart to be a fiction writer. And I I think you could say he lived a little bit in fear of it. And maybe ultimately, you know, I mean, if you look at Pale King. That was going to be my next
0: question. How does Pale King fit into this overthinking? Because I do think that is kind of a, a, a very challenging book. I think Infant Jest is a beautifully written book, delicious prose, great to get into, and, and I love the themes of it. But uh, how do you see it fitting?
1: Well, there's many complexities to that question because we don't have a finished manuscript. We have, I think, a very, very able job that his editor, Michael Peach, was did with the highest standards, but still not a finished manuscript. I think a lot of the scenes are the most accessibly written prose that Wallace wrote outside of his nonfiction. I mean, they're very fluid set scenes, uh, which makes me suspicious that some of them were actually written a lot earlier, but I don't know. I mean, I leave that to a generation of textual scholars, but it's weird that the same writer is writing Oblivion and Pale King at the same time. It doesn't really quite make sense. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, Oblivion is so determined to be difficult and The Pale King is really quite accessible. I mean, if, if there's nothing, it's far easier a book to read than Infinite Chest. And even on the level of the sentence and the character, I mean, he does things to create character, for instance, in A Pale King that he doesn't really do in Infinite Chest. I mean, it, parts of it are much closer to classic, you know, creative writing class writing. Obviously, the the trope of... The key idea, which is how do you make boring things interesting, he overcomes in the conventional way, which is he makes the prose interesting, he makes the people interesting in their boredom so that you don't really experience the boredom. You know, In other words, there's one brief moment where somebody's just turning pages, but that only lasts very briefly. I mean, much more of the book is, it's like a novel. I mean, it's got places and ideas and persons and characters and conflicts and things you know, it is in the service of this slightly odd tax thing. But, I mean, it's not really a tax novel. I mean, certainly I would never give it to an accountant who's, like, training <laughs> to be an IRS agent. You know, it's he picked out the fun things about the IRS. He invented some of the other ones. I mean, I enjoy it very much. I I don't really try to situate it in the work. I just find there's too many unknowns, really, Charles, surrounding Mm -hmm. what we think of it if I kept up more maybe with the academic information on it because you know it's the only one where we have manuscripts there's some nonfiction that has manuscripts so we don't really have early manuscripts of infinite jest or anything I mean if we do then he wrote these things almost perfectly on first drafts and that seems almost impossible to imagine so there must have been one guesses there were thousands of pages thrown away we don't have them but with Pale King, we have much more of that. We have a lot of near, you know, we have the stuff writers usually produce, you know, where you do a draft, and then you say, oh, I'll do a better draft, and it's only somewhat different, and then one day you drop a character, and, and the next day you invent a character, and it gives, you know, forensic textual scholars good material to work with, you know, where you can really look at a sentence. If I was reinventing Wallace, Pale King wouldn't be the last novel. <laughs> right. I mean, and maybe it really wasn't, sort of. I mean, again, what pieces were lying around? I don't know. So I read your book when it came out. I reread it
0: ahead of this interview. And one thing that struck me that I hadn't quite integrated the first time around as much as I did the second time around was the influence that he felt from two huge monuments of American literature, American fiction. And those two writers are Thomas Pynchon and Don DeLillo. What role do you ascribe to them in the literary development of David Foster Wallace throughout his career? I mean, they're both still alive, and they both had their piece of influence. DeLillo was probably much closer to him than, than was Pynchon, but he's always kind of compared to the two. In fact, a, a thought occurred to me that right after the publication of Infinite Jest, Don DeLillo came out with his own version of a mega- American postmodern novel
1: Underworld in 1997. So how does that all fit in? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think a couple of things stand out. One, I would at least argue, subject to your sending me back to the text, that Pynchon is the greater literary influence and that DeLillo is the greater cultural or moral influence. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, you can see, obviously in Broom of the System, but even in Infinite Jest, you can see I think a lot of Pinchonian stuff. And, you know, and and I would even sort of think like you couldn't imagine Wallace without Pinchon. Now, he's a big fan of DeLellos. You know, unlike you, I haven't gone back to my biography very recently, but my memory is they only meet in person once. Mm -hmm. And it's at a bar or coffee shop with Jonathan Franz and kind of doing the um, midwifing. So, I'm not sure how close he is really to either, except that he and Delillo have an enjoyable epistolary relationship. That's right.
0: Epistolary relationship and, and David Foster Wallace seems to almost lean on him yes. a little bit and, right. and write to him as a source of potential support.
1: Yes, but you know, he doesn't right, no, and I agree with you about that, Charles. But I mean, if you think about the letters, at least as I remember them, you know, they don't really ask much about fiction. They ask a lot about being a fiction writer. So they're like, how can you sit down every day and know you're gonna fail? That kind of question. Whereas, I mean, he doesn't have a, any conversation with Pynchon as far as they know, they they never met, though. They would have could have easily bumped into each other in New York at various times. You know, they would have known a million people in common. But, you know, with Pynchon, he's sort of, you know, learning how you can write a non-naturalist kind of prose, which is, you know, a very important non-realistic prose. Now, DeLillo would certainly argue he doesn't write realist prose either, if, if he would argue anything. But I mean, you can see that Underworld is a very, very different endeavor from Infinite Jest. I mean, they, they really in some way represent two ways of imagining the future. They're not inconsistent. I mean, you know, don't they both at some level have like toxic garbage at their centers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One (laughs) one hurls it overhead and the other one...
0: That's true. Well said, toxic garbage. Yeah,
1: but I think, you know, and I'm slightly channeling, I think Jonathan Franzen's thinking here, that to some extent Wallace learned how to be a writer in the world from DeLillo, like how to accept both your status, your lack of status, how to position yourself vis-a-vis a public that wants a piece of you you don't want to give, how to discuss interpret and project high literary art to a public that tends to both diminish that and dismiss the people who present it and so he picks that up from DeLillo and then a kind of general like coachy vibe about like go on out there slugger you know I mean there's a certain amount of like looking for a coach right like a coach who says keep trying but uh As for DeLillo's actual literary influence, you know, I'm again going to fall slightly short of the very best minds on this, and I'll bet there is some academic literature by now. I guess I could say I could see it more in Pale King than I can see it in Infinite Jest, for instance, and maybe in some of the stories, but I don't know that I see it all that much in anything. You know, now for me, the most important DeLillo is the DeLillo of the names. I mean, that's the DeLillo I most relate to is that period. I guess you call it middle period DeLillo. And that stuff, you know, with its kind of slightly claustrophobic thing, I don't see it in in Wallace. Again, I'm not being compendious, uh, but it doesn't strike me as like the Infinite Jest style. You know, and I think we can agree, if we agree on anything, it's like, infinite chest is what we have to pay attention to with Wallace you know I mean we, we could spend our time spinning our wheels on boom of the system or brief interviews girl with curious hair yeah, yeah girl with curious hair but we really have to it's really infinite chest you like you know go big or go home that I don't see a great overlap so I think 92 93 ish that he's writing those letters so you know it's it's not unperformative itself in the sense that I don't think he's writing to Delillo when he's working on The Pale King and things aren't going so well. I don't remember any letters from that time at all, actually. Sort of interesting. In, in other words, my, my, my point being, when he really desperately needs help, he doesn't turn to DeLillo. Now, he was married then, and you yeah. know, he had other support.
0: To broach a, a more painful subject, personally, from my perspective, I only learned of his lifelong struggle with depression after his death. I had never really heard about it. Before then, and I'm not sure how well known this battle was to the outside world. His battles with addiction are are much more obvious uh, and, and were maybe more apparent in his writing, but his depression not so much. Why is that? Or or was it more visible? And I
1: and I wasn't reading the right articles or... I think the depression battle was not well-known. I'm not sure how well-known the addiction battle exactly was. He certainly fought that narrative. You know, I'm trying to think of particular examples, but it isn't... I I believe he kind of evades it. He does two interviews with Charlie Rose, the then-dominant talk show figure on public television. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right in the first one, the first one he's with Jonathan and the second one he's on his own. But... I believe in both, he kind of battles the idea that he is somebody who overcame addiction, even like fighting the idea and minimizing it. And then in the New York Times Magazine piece, which is a profile of Wallace that came out with Infinite Jest, again, he doesn't contribute much to either of those narratives. So when I did the biography, you know, the first pieces of it come out after his death, his father speaks candidly to Bruce Weber of the New York Times who's writing the obituary about Wallace and depression, about his son and depression. And uh, they go into some detail. But even when I started the biography, you know, a great deal... I mean, no one really knew anything. I mean, his friends knew something. But again, he was, a very, he was a very hidden guy. So you would think every one of his friends knew the same thing about depression and Wallace. Just not true. Nor did they all know the same thing about addiction and Wallace. And uh, so, for instance... You know, when I found out, for instance, that there are all these suicide attempts, I don't think any of that had been written by anyone or was even widely known by anyone or even sort of known by anyone. And and certainly nobody knew of all the attempts. And even when I had published the book, I found out going around talking about it. I, I actually, like, for instance, I had not ever successfully found his roommate. There's a period in Wallace's life after he comes out of rehab where he lives in um, an area just outside of Boston with another guy who's also out of rehab. And I didn't know much about that period because I could not find the guy. He lives up Mass Ave, um, Massachusetts Avenue. And um, that guy told me about like another attempt. I mean, attempt possibly in quotes, but where he like comes downstairs and finds that Wallace has like, tried to hang himself from a spindle on their two-story staircase, Point being, like, you know, I don't know how many people knew about that. Maybe only one person, you know, on the planet. Um, And the details of his antidepressants, you know, I don't even know that his family had all the information. I really pieced it together from disparate sources, everybody knowing something or other. Now, I mean, I think a perceptive reader, or even a moderately perceptive reader reading, you know, you know, by infinite jest, he's famous enough for that New York Times magazine profile to come out, which tells you some stuff. But is there something in *Girl with Curious Hair* that would make you know that he'd had battles with addiction? I'm trying to remember.
0: I, off the top of my head, I, I don't really see that theme emerging in
1: in any yeah. of the stories. I can't get out of my head because of writing the biography that well, that he began to date shortly after publishing that book when he was living in um, in Illinois teaching at Illinois State he he dated a woman who was in the mental health field or actually i think in child welfare and she said she took one look at the picture on the back of girl with curious hair and thought to herself user that's right yes so but it's hard to get that out of my head and think what would a what would a reader have known from that so i didn't know i mean i didn't know any of this when wallace died i didn't know that he'd had struggles with depression i don't think i read the times magazine piece the profile when it came out. Um, this is uh, a piece that ran right on the publication of um, of Infinite Jest, and that Wallace took great pains to evade the reporter and anything significant. I mean, he treated it kind of like a big game. You know, I think he did it because he had to. He wanted to get his book out. He felt he owed the same reason most writers, except. The job of being profiled like it's like the job of having a biography on the one hand you're honored on the other hand you know your Dalilloian stance is to say no plus you're afraid of what they'll find out so and in his case I don't think he wanted a long history of his suicide attempts and I don't think they're in there um, now the writer may have known them and outrun them that's also a possibility or not or, or known of them but not well enough to document them
0: That concludes the first part of the episode of my interview with DT Max. Stay tuned for next week where we discuss the personal flaws of the man and if and how they can be separated from the artist, as well as DT Max's recommendations on great books you've never heard of and books that changed his mind, books that he enjoyed, and so on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at litwithcharles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.